Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The new Chinese premier in Europe. During his first visit abroad since taking office in March, Li Chiang spent six days visiting Germany and France with a heavy focus on business ties. The Chinese premier held talks with German and French leaders as well as attending gatherings for business leaders. Officials from both sides, especially China and Germany, have also held consultations involving a wide range of government departments from both sides. Premier Li Chiang also attended a global financing summit which seeks to build a new contract between the global north and south on climate change. His presence was a rare sight after China-EU ties faced a period of murkiness aggravated by travel restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So what messages did the Chinese Premier send with the help of personal experiences, even humour? How have they gone down with his European hosts and the general public? What does it have to do with you if you're in other parts of Europe or other parts of the world? Welcome to this uh, discussion. I'm pleased to be joined from um, Shanghai by Chen Dongxiao, president of Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, from Paris by Professor Joab Toker, American Graduate School in Paris, and from Berlin by Stefan Osenkov, senior fellow at the Schiller Institute. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. President uh, Chen, if I may go to you first, um, what do you think are the considerations behind Premier Li's choice of destinations for his first overseas trip? We understand that last month, China's State Councillor and Foreign Minister Qing Gang also visited Germany and France, uh, of course, along other Euro another European country. Well, I think that uh, 2023 is the uh, 20th anniversary of China-EU Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. And both France and Germany are the two leading economies of Europe, as well as the most important key players in Europe. And therefore, I think that to maintain a robust, stable, as well as comprehensive partnership <coughs> strategic partnership with these two leading economies, two leading political players of Europe, will be very important for China's economic, political, and strategic interests. And I think that uh, just as uh, uh, Premier Lin Qiang has mentioned uh, in his meeting with his counterparts with both Paris and Berlin, that uh, he is try to use these important bilateral meetings as well as by taking these multilateral meetings on new global financing pact to show China's interest or commitment in maintaining a strategic partnership meaningful with both two countries and also show China's commitments to help particularly facilitate the global partnership for those large number of developing countries in uh, difficulties. 
Well, one highlight of uh, Premier Li's visit is the seventh China-Germany intergovernmental consultation. As I said, officials from 22 departments, including foreign affairs, economy and trade, finance, education, environmental, etc., updated leaders from both sides on their collaboration. Now, the sixth consultation, the last one, the previous one, was held online in 2021, and uh, China's foreign minister. Ministry spokesperson called the uh, mechanism of intergovernmental consultation with Chinese Premier and the German Chancellor as its co-chairs a super motor between the two countries. Um, Professor Chen, President Chen, as it is again about uh, uh, the Chinese way of understanding how is this uh, super motor going at this moment? Is it really very effective? Well, I think that in terms of the governmental-to-governmental -governmental relationship, those established and workable intergovernmental consultation platforms always played the most important role in shaping the agenda, in forming the consensus, as well as I think could uh, uh, help pave the way for more detailed agreements between two sides. So I think that uh, if we compare it with the past, and in terms of China's relationship with all those key economies, uh, whether it's advanced economies and developing economies, China's always attached greater importance of maintaining a very robust and governmental to governmental, uh, intergovernmental uh, consultation forum. I think that such kind of uh, a consultation forum as uh, Premier Li Chang this time attend the seventh uh, intergovernmental consultation with uh, his counterparts in Berlin has again shown that uh, uh, I think all those important uh, agencies, ministries of two countries, they could compare notes about uh, where are we now about our progress? What are the remaining difficulties or as well as the challenges ahead of us? And how that both sides by or through the concerted efforts could address those difficulties and the differences and also to find out a solutions to those challenges. So I think such kind of intergovernmental mechanism playing the key role and also it did reach already, I think it, we have seen a lot of the progress and uh, uh, results have been reached uh, following this seventh intergovernmental consultation. Professor Toker, let me go to you. Um, as important as intergovernmental consultation are, the business community definitely on the watch out during Premier Li's visit. Wherever he went, he attended, as I said, seminars with business leaders in Berlin on the second day after he arrived in Germany. He visited BMW and Siemens in Munich. He also attended a dinner with French business leaders in Paris. So uh, how much have businesses in Europe looking for messages from the Chinese Premier during the trip. Do they need a timely shot in the arm of confidence from the Chinese side? Or what were they looking for? Did they get it? They were looking for many things and they were extremely, extremely attentive to what actually was exposed um, on the part of, of, Prime, uh, of uh, Prime Minister Li. Obviously, uh, in, in this sense, uh, let it be in Germany or in France or in other uh, contexts which were related to the financial climate summit which took place in Paris right after the bilateral talks between uh, the Chinese delegation and Germany and France. Uh, what, what, it can, what, what is it very important to understand 
uh, on the European side, but I believe on the Chinese side as well, is the overall con contextualization. And the overall contextualization uh, really gravitates right now um, around geostrategic understanding, which is conditioned by the war in Ukraine. Although the war in Ukraine per se is not a business issue, isn't it? And is not, although it is related perhaps to questions which are affiliated with energy and with uh, commodities, the issue which is on the mind of European leaders, business community and away from the business community, is really linked to this war which is taking place an hour and a half flight away from where I'm speaking to you or my colleague in Berlin uh, is speaking to you. Uh, so maybe if you look at it from Beijing or from Washington, this uh, tragic war um, seems obviously very serious and very uh, important, but you don't feel it the way European nations do. And I'm already on the western side of the continent in Paris, in France, but think about the overall appreciation of other European countries which are even closer to the battle. So what were they looking for from China, from the Chinese Premier um, that, you know, for instance, China's position on the war or China's position on further opening up in terms of uh, business uh, collaboration with Europe? Professor Toker. Directly, when it comes to those um, uh, four or five days of conversations, they were not looking from Prime, Prime Minister Li uh, uh, clarifications regarding the geostrategic positions of China. Although, of course, clues and hints regarding this position, which attracts extreme attention of the entire world, because the overall Western position is that perhaps the only protagonist which can meaningfully, meaningfully influence decisions in Moscow in favor of uh, uh, heating down the tension is probably Beijing, more so than any other capital on earth, perhaps. Um, so, so this was not on the table. This was the, how should I say, this was the elephant in the room. Okay. So you, I get your point. I get your point, uh, Professor Toker. Let me let me save some time for our third guest, uh, Stephen Olsenkopp, uh, joining us from Berlin. Stephen, I hope you are there and you can hear me. What is your take? I'm here. Yeah. Do you think German business leaders were concerned uh, overwhelmingly by the geopolitical situation in Europe rather than uh, the business environment or, you know, the kind of opening up China is committed to carrying out? Uh, were they getting the kind of messages that they were looking for from Premier Li's visit? Yes, definitely, in, uh, in a very specific way, because uh, the German Chancellor Scholz uh, explicitly rejected decoupling and also Elisabeth Born, the French prime minister, later on said the same thing and said there will be no decoupling. So without um, uh, pointing their fingers at Washington, this was um, a clear uh, different positioning than Washington and the Anglo-Americans. So there was, uh, for the German industry and also for the French industry, a clear signal that the, the, they will not let the supply chain, the industrial chain, trade and investment uh, relations between uh, European countries and China will not let, uh, uh, basically let that go and sacrifice it for geopolitical reasons. I think that was very important. You saw that there were not only government consultations, but also large roundtables uh, where uh, between industrialists, 
uh, and um, representatives of uh, the, the department. Mm -hmm. uh, cooperation agreements were signed. Uh, you had a lot of um, uh, intergovernmental uh, fora for cooperation in science and industry. So I think there was a lot of pressure, especially by the German industry. We need a clear signal there will be no decoupling, and that was also a position against, explicitly against the European Union Commission and leadership who talked about de-risking, which is basically the same thing, had just a different color and smell maybe, but uh, the consequences of de-risking would be no less dramatic for the German and maybe also the French industry. Okay. So I think that was the key message. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Professor Chen, let me come back to you if you want to respond to uh, what the other guests were speaking. Of course, you're welcome to do that. To do that. But in wrap up, I really want to, to, uh, want to hear from the Chinese perspective. Do you think China achieved its expected goals after this objectives after this visit? Uh, are Europe and China, or at least the, you know, the two largest economies in Europe and China, on a more engaging way of, you know, interacting with each other? Well, I think that uh, Premier Li Qiang's visit to two countries uh, have already, as I expect, we have uh, uh, realized our uh, expectation. And uh, for mainly two reasons. <coughs> One is, I think, in terms of those politically speaking, that this visit will somewhat improve the political trust between two sides, between Beijing and Berlin and Beijing and France. I say that it is too somewhat because for the past couple of years, particularly for the past three, two or three years, we have seen a quite a difficult, politically difficult period of time between two sides. Mm. And there are a lot of talkings about decoupling, a lot of talking about so-called China threat. And I think that uh, uh, the key message Premier Li Qiang's visit to either Berlin and France is to make it very clear that China is still opening up, is still an opening up society. And China is very committed itself, engage with European counterparts to make this uh, economic recovery as stable and robust as possible. Because if we have seen a continuous deterioration of global economy, I think that we will see a more serious consequences politically, okay. securitily, securitily as, as well as economically. So I think that this is very important. Okay. Secondly, in terms of a bilateral relationship, I think following these visits and uh, uh, China and uh, France, as well as China and Berlin, we also reach uh, quite a number of a, a important uh, bilateral cooperation agreements on a lot of issues on green transition, environmental uh, protection, climate change response, uh, maintaining a high level industrial, global and supply chain, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, from a Chinese perspective, we have already reached a lot of expectations uh, we have uh, of right. this visit. All right, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to Chen Dongxiao, President of Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, Professor Joav Toker from the American Graduate School in Paris, who is joining us at this inconvenient hour. I really appreciate that. And uh, Stephen Ossenkorp, a senior fellow at Schiller Institute. Because of technical issues, we won't be able to get more of your opinion. But next time, hopefully. When we come back, a mutiny by Russia's uh, Wagner Group leader Prigozhin appears to have ended with him recalling the truth.
troops. What impact will the day of chaos have on Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Chaos, betrayal and a shifting landscape. It has been a wild weekend in Russia. On Saturday, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the former chief of the Wagner mercenary group, called off the mutiny he initiated just a day earlier after his soldiers were already making their way to the Russian capital, Moscow. In an emergency televised address, Russian President Vladimir Putin had called the armed mutiny as treason. Russia's National Anti-Terrorist Committee has opened a criminal case against Prigozhin, accusing him of calling for an armed rebellion. But the case was dropped after a deal was brokered by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. At the moment, uh, Prigozhin's location is not known. What impact will the day of chaos have on Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine? I'm pleased to be joined here in the Beijing studio by Teng Jianqing, director of the Diplomatic Studies Center at Hunan Normal University and from Shanghai by Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Gentlemen, welcome. So on Saturday, as we say, the Wagner Group claimed control of all military bases in southern Russian city of Rost, uh, Rostov-on-Don and uh, uh, another city about 500 kilometers mm -hmm. away from Moscow before he agreed to de-escalate. So looking back, Professor Teng, how would you call the incident, the saga, what has changed and what has not? Uh, this is a big event for the Russian government, especially the uh, mercenary group. Just uh, uh, would like to have some bargaining uh, with the central government and with the Ministry of Foreign uh, with, uh, Defense. So I think uh, this event will give some uh, impact on the uh, special operation in Ukraine, but I don't think it will uh, fundamentally change the landscape of the uh, political uh, life in Kremlin or in Moscow or in the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, Professor Mahoney, what is your take? What has changed, what has not, and uh, what will be the fate of precaution? Well, you know, I think the mutiny, in so much as the reporting uh, that we have about it is reliable, it's it's not surprising. Uh, the firm was not supposed to be operating in Russia, and by some accounts, it's uh, illegal under Russian law. Uh, nevertheless, the situation in Ukraine appears to have created uh, these exceptional circumstances, which are not that exceptional compared with mercenaries used by other states in recent conflicts. And uh, Wagner grew in size and, and capabilities, uh, while also directly challenging the Russian uh, military leadership, with whom they uh, competed for resources, recruits, uh, strategy, and power. Now, I'm inclined to view the mutiny as an unsurprising and largely well-managed reckoning uh, with a force that had reached a tipping point in terms of its cost and benefits, uh, that the mutiny came when uh, Wagner was already in decline, uh, while Russia was in the midst of confronting uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, is not surprising. I think it signals uh, Wagner's uh, desperate uh, opportunism. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the mutiny failed and was aborted, uh, with Wagner forces uh, either joining the army or leaving Russia. Now, I would suggest this demonstrates not the weakness of the Russian state, as some have argued, but another example of uh, resiliency uh, while managing many other difficult challenges. 
Yeah, as you mentioned, Professor Mahoney, some analysts and some media have uh, said that Russian President Vladimir Putin will be weakened by the episode that the next, accounting from when the incident started, that the next two days will be a moment of call uh, for the fate of the Russian president, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McCall, told NBC that the Russian leader is much weaker today before uh, than before the incident. Uh, Professor Tung, do you agree? And uh, what may be the changes, even challenges, pre President Putin must face now? Uh, I'm not 100% in favor of such an argument that the uh, Putin government has become weaker and weaker at this moment. I think, to some extent, uh, Putin government will learn some lessons from the incident and will enhance its uh, uh, political control and military control in the country. So that might be a good chance for uh, President Putin to go in further to consolidate his power, especially uh, the central uh, power in Moscow and also change some leaders for the uh, special operation in Ukraine. This might be a, a good uh, opportunity for Putin to reorganize the uh, military and also to reorganize the uh, political power in Moscow. But some people would argue that the Wagner Group had been instrumental in capturing some of the key strate mm -hmm. strategic places. I mean, uh, either this group in particular or the mechanism of using mercenaries, which mm -hmm. is rather a common practice in the Russian, uh, you know, war um, practices. Professor Tung, in terms of that, what kind of challenges will this incident have on the future uh, war fighting capability of Russia? Of course, th this is a really a strange arrangement to, to have some mercenary you know, group in the operation and in the armed forces. Actually, uh, Wagner Group has been the second hand of the uh, Russian military, for example, to promote the uh, uh, national interest in the Middle East and in Africa. This is actually the uh, most important part for Putin government to uh, enhance or to promote its national interest in some areas in the world. So I think uh, Wagner Group has already finished uh, its job in Ukraine, but it will continue uh, to play a very important role in such a promotion of national interest of Russia. You mean there will be another uh, mercenary group or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the remaining soldiers of the group? Professor Tung, very briefly. Uh, I think the uh, Wagner uh, group will be there and some other uh, mercenary groups okay. will be there. All right. Professor uh, Mahoney, what's your take? Well, you know, I think the best analysis on this comes from Ukraine, which has described this uh, disappointingly as the most ridiculous mutiny ever. I think many Ukrainians and their supporters were optimistic this would be a game changer and have hoped uh, for some time that this would be the case uh, well before uh, it happened. Uh, I think, you know, many saw this reckoning coming uh, sooner or later. The, the fact that it's fizzled so completely and deflated Kiev's optimisms uh, suggests that it will have little impact on the conflict in ways that will benefit uh, Ukraine. Uh, contrarily, I think it may now strengthen uh, Russia's uh, uh, state position as it reconsolidates its forces. I agree with my colleague in Beijing in what is likely to be the, the, the final or near final act of this conflict. Uh, in other words, uh, once this uh, counter offensive has run its course uh, and, and people have uh, accepted uh, finding a negotiated solution is the only way forward. Um, 
from the the speed how things developed and and the and the ridiculous uh, ways to borrow some people's words how it ended um, what can we learn about the level professor Tung, the mm -hmm. level of unity and stability or resilience in russia how ready and capable is russia or is the Putin administration in dealing with such crises? But on mm. the other mm. hand, could it also be there was a ridiculous thing that was started in the first place? So it doesn't say much. Yeah, it was a very dangerous moment for Putin and for the Russian government, uh, especially after Brigadin uh, just announced that uh, he would like to, you know, uh, march on toward Moscow. That From might hundreds be, of kilometers uh, yeah, yeah. away. And also with such a, a, you know, a heavy, heavily armed uh, you know, forces for the uh, country. So I think after the ending of this event, I'm sure Putin will uh, continue uh, his policy toward Ukraine and uh, toward the uh, you know, reorganization of his power in Moscow. So th this is a, might be a a good opportunity for Putin to go ahead to be the uh, central mm. leader of the country. Professor Mahoney, your take on that and also on the reactions from the ordinary people we're seeing on pictures and videos, they seem to be very calm and not at all aroused or, or excited of, or terrorized by the, the potential consequence. We saw life going on as much as usual, as, as, as people can in these places. Uh, how so? Why is that? Well, you know, I think we also saw a lot of people, a lot of Russians coming out and, and uh, supporting and praising uh, the Wagner forces. Um, I think many people in Russia are aware that Wagner has played an instrumental role in the conflict and they're appreciative of that. But at the same time, the conflict or the, the mutiny was not working. I think this was the main point that was articulated in the call with Lukashenko that uh, uh, um, Wagner hoped that this would spark a broader uprising that would perhaps lead to a coup. That clearly wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, Wagner doesn't have its own air support, so it was it was going to run okay. out of gas and, and abilities. But, okay. uh, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I really have to uh, wrap up there. But uh, from China's perspective, China has been quite cautious mm -hmm. and obviously wanted to wait and see how the situation unfolds before making any statement. China in, in the end said this is Russia's internal affair. We are not going to uh, do much or say much as, as Russia's friendly neighbor and comprehensive strategic partner of coordination for the new era. China supports Russia in maintaining national stability and achieving development and prosperity. Professor Tung, mm -hmm. 20 seconds really you can. Um, mm -hmm. What, what sets China apart from the excitement that we're seeing among some Western countries? Of course, a stable uh, neighbor should be a very important part for uh, China, for its uh, domestic development and uh, for the cooperation with other countries. So we should address the importance of the stability in any country close to China. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Teng Jianqing, Director of the Diplomatic Studies Center of Hunan Normal University and Joseph Bahoni from East China Normal University. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. Thanks for joining us.